We have been through a uh, working our way through the Ten Commandments uh, in the Old Testament here recorded in uh, the book of Exodus since the beginning of the year. And today we come to uh, the conclusion of God's ten words spoken to his covenant people there on Mount Sinai. God has designed our world to function according to principles of justice. And one of the keys uh, and the key principles of justice in our world is this notion of fairness. I recently saw a YouTube video that was, I think it was a clip of maybe a TED Talk, where a scientist was talking about how they did an experiment with uh, two uh, capuchin monkeys on fairness. And in this clip that they showed, there was a scientist scientist who was standing in front of these two monkeys that were each in their own cage, And they gave each monkey a task. The task was that they would put a rock in uh, a door on one side of their cage, and they were supposed to hand that rock back to them out of another side. And when they performed their task uh, accurately, they received a reward. And so the experiment begins where the scientist places the rock inside of the cage, and the first monkey grabs the rock and moves to the other side and hands the rock out. And the uh, scientist then rewards this monkey with a slice of cucumber. And the monkey grabs it and begins eating it. And she does the same with the monkey on the right. He gets the, uh, the rock, and then he gets, or she gets a, uh, a slice of cucumber, and everybody's content. She goes back to the first monkey um, at that point and uh, re- performs the experiment again, gives the rock and gives the monkey a piece of cucumber when the monkey gives it back. But the second monkey, and when uh, she returns the rock back, she this time gets half of a grape. And the first time that she tries this, the, the first monkey grabs the cucumber like he got the first time, and he's beginning eating it, and he, but he recognizes in that moment, I got a cucumber, and, and she got a grape. And so she try, the, the scientist then goes for a third round, and she gives the monkey the rock, and the monkey goes around and hands it back to her, and she gives that first monkey a cucumber again. And at that point, that first monkey looks at the cucumber, reaches back out of the cage, and throws the cucumber in her face. Because the monkey recognizes, and this goes on, she tries it multiple times, and every time that she gives this monkey a cucumber and the second monkey a grape, the first monkey throws the cucumber back at her and begins shaking the cage violently because she knows that this is not fair. And if even a monkey has an ability to understand this notion of fairness and where this monkey sees disparity and responds with indignation, how much truer must this be of you and I? As human beings, cognizant of our surroundings, kids notice this. It's not just true of monkeys, our kids see it. Go to a birthday party and and give a kid a slice of cake that's just slightly larger than their friend. Watch World War III break out. His cake has more sprinkles than mine. His cake came off of the corner, so it's got Three sides of icing instead of one side of icing. Even worse, living in the society that we're in now, try to be a parent and and have your kid come and say, well, her parents let her watch that movie or play that video game or her parents give her a cell phone. Why not me? It's just not fair. But it's not just true of monkeys. It's not just true of our kids. It's true of us. I mean, think about March Madness and how that brings out everything inside of us, right? It doesn't take us very long For us to be upset, not with the performance of our team, but instead the performance of the officials. 
If they just call fouls on both ends of the court, everything would be fine. And our team's performance is not what's in question here. It's the fairness of these officials. But what about the person who's been at the company half as long as I have who gets the promotion that I feel like I deserve? Or what about my neighbor who gets the bigger and better house or the newer car or takes their third vacation for the year? We all want what's fair. But the problem isn't necessarily with the notion of fairness. The problem is our perspective of what is fair. If we received what we thought was fair, then we would all be content and comfortable and we would go on with our lives and there would be no problem. The problem, though, is that in our fallenness, we have a skewed perception of what is fair. And it's always skewed in our favor. In our fallen perspective, we live these self-centered lives believing that what is best is always what's best for me. Alexander Dumas in the, the Three Musketeers, they have a really great and lofty biblical notion that says all for one and one for all, right? But in our reality and in our everyday lives, oftentimes what we live is all for me and so should it be. When the world doesn't function in such a way that we get what we think we deserve or even what we desire, our reactions are far worse than monkeys throwing cucumbers. It's violence, it's anger, it's discord, it's distrust, it's quarrels and fights that are among you. And so as the Lord concludes his ten words spoken to his covenant peoples, he actually aims directly at our desires and declares to our hearts that we must trust him. Trust in the Lord and be content in all of your circumstances. Look with me, if you will, at Exodus chapter 20, the last word spoken to his people in Exodus 20, verse 17, reads this way. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your deep concern for every detail of our lives. I thank you that, Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are loving and you are kind and you are gracious and you are generous. You are concerned about every detail of our lives. And beyond even that, Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over the universe, which means not only do you care, not only are you concerned, you have the ability to do something about our circumstances. All we need to do is trust in you. So I pray that this morning we would be moved to take our eyes from our circumstances and from the world that is around us and instead fix our eyes on you. Give us a Godward perspective that will change the way that we interact with our lives and the way that we live with one another and the way that we are faithful. Guard our hearts, Heavenly Father. Fill us with the grace that comes with the gospel that we might love you and love others as you've instructed us to in your words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been looking at these ten commandments, or ten words, uh, in God's word, uh, given to his people at Mount Sinai, we've strived to go beyond just the surface. We have a tendency when we interact with these commands to read them at surface levels. And even we've seen over the last several weeks, our tendency is to say, well, you know what, I've never killed anybody, so I'm okay. I've never committed adultery, so I'm good. I've never told, you know, I haven't lied on the witness stand, so I'm, I'm okay there. 
And we read these at the surface level, and we've been attempting to realize that God is aiming far deeper than just our behaviors and our actions. He's deep, reaching deep into our attitudes and our heart's desires. And this is nowhere more clear to you or to me, really, than in this command. As God aims this last command right at our hearts and proves that he's been doing so the entire time. What does it mean that we're not to, to covet? To covet is just a synonym for desire. You shall not desire what belongs to your neighbor. To covet is to have a wrong desire or to desire something that is wrong. It's both and, both sides of the same coin. So what would it be to have a, to, to have a desire that is wrong? Well, it would be wrong, according to this verse, at face level, to desire anything that's not been given to you by God, but has instead been given to somebody else. You are not to desire your neighbor's house. Now, on the surface, that is that big thing in which he or she lives. But we know in Scripture that a house is not always a physical structure that is a home. God tells David in 2 Samuel, I think it is, chapter 7, when David is saying that he wants to build a house for the Lord, David has in mind a temple, a physical structure. God responds that says, I am going to build you a house, a house that's going to last forever. And so God's notion of a house is the household. So we can see on the surface we're not to, to only desire wrongly that house, that home in which they live, but we're not supposed to desire their family, their lineage, their reputation. All that, is, that, that comes with their wealth or their prosperity or their history even. We're not to desire our neighbor's wife. The single most important human relationship that exists, that relationship that is supposed to be intimate, that relationship that is naturally vulnerable, we are not to long for that relationship which God has gifted to another person. We're not to covet his ox or his donkey his wealth, his property. In this day and age, in an agricultural society, a man or family's wealth was determined based on their land as well as what they had to work that land. Their oxen, go back and, and read in the numbers and read in the in, in book of Genesis and you will find, even when you look at the book of Job, Job had X number of thousands of oxen and camels and everything else. We are not to, to covet after, desire wrongly the wealth and property of somebody else. We're not supposed to long for or covet or desire his servants, his employees, or I would say even be out by extension, the relationships that exist in that person's life. Friends, family, connections, and so on and so forth. And then as though God just needs to make sure that it's all clear, he says, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Just that last phrase gets it all. Anything that is your neighbor's goes back to this principles of stewardship that we established when we talked about the command in which God says we're not to steal. That God is the giver of all things, and God has entrusted certain properties, certain positions, certain power to individual peoples, and they are accountable for that. And we are not to desire wrongly those things that God has given to somebody else. But what about having a wrong desire for something that is good? How can we desire good things in a wrong way? Well, we can desire money in a wrong way. Money in and of itself, when we get into Scripture, money is a neutral, spiritually, morally neutral tool. 
The Bible says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money, the desire of money, to inherently long to be able to build for myself this mass of wealth that I hold to myself. It's kind of that picture of Scrooge McDuck. You remember watching Scrooge McDuck and what did he do? He had millions of dollars. Have you ever gone on and uh, you can do a Google search of who are the most, uh, the, the wealthiest fictional, creature, fictional creatures um, and characters that are out there? And Scrooge McDuck blows Bruce Wayne and all the rest of them out of the water based on wealth and everything else. And what does he do? He keeps it there so that he can swim in his money. It's not wrong to desire the ability to provide for myself or for my family or even to be able to give generously of what God has given to me. But when I desire money just for the sake of securing my own position and myself, that leads to evil. We can, mar- we can uh, value wrongly, desire wrongly marriage, a good gift given to us by God. I can't tell you how many young men and young women that I have seen who are so crippled by our expectation that they get married that they don't know what to do with their lives. They're pushing their late 20s, their early 30s, and they're constantly berated with the question, well, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get in that relationship? What's wrong with you that a man doesn't want you is how, what they hear. But I've seen others that not only have that pressure put from outside, but that pressure that's inside. There's a desire and there's a longing for a relationship. And you know what they do? They end up destroying every relationship, undermining every relationship that they enter because of their desperation. It sabotages any level of intimacy because they're constantly afraid, are you going to leave me now? And they turn marriage into something that they have to have. And the people then in their lives become means to that end. Tools to be used so that I get what I want, which is marriage. We can do the same thing with God's good gift of work. When we want prosperity and we want status and we take God's good gift of work that he commands, you're to work six days a week and you're to rest one, commanded Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, you are to work and keep the land. But when we take the good gift of work that God has placed in our lives and we begin working so desperately hard that we end up neglecting ourselves or our our families or the obligations that we have spiritually to the Lord and to his people, Work then becomes something that is evil in our lives. We can do it with recreation. We can live to work, but at the same time, we can work to play. And a lot of times when we give ourselves completely over to our recreation and to our play, we end up neglecting the weightier matters of our lives, such as our own character, family, and our relationships with the Lord. Recreation can be just as much of a threat to our relationship with the Lord and with the church as work can be. So we can covet the right things wrongly. We can uh, covet the wrong things. And coveting is a matter of the heart's desire. You see, unlike the last couple of commands where we can say, okay, aha, you're lying, you're stealing, you're cheating, you're whatever else it may be, it can be difficult for us to sit back and go, aha, you're coveting. Because it's a desire that is inside of us. And so we think that we can't see it. But the truth of the matter is we'll find, I think we can. Because God's command that we not covet is a beautiful way that God has decided to tie a nice big bow on top of these Ten Commandments. Coveting is 
directly at our hearts. The rest might seem like they're in our hands and our behavior, but here God is aiming at our hearts and God is exposing our tendency to violate all of the rest of the commands, but especially we've said that Jesus summarized these commands with the two great commands, right? That you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what we looked at is the first four commands instructs us in how we are to love the Lord and that we are to worship him only. We're not supposed to make any idols or graven images. We're not supposed to bear his name in vain. We're supposed to set aside the day that he set apart as holy in order to direct our worship and our focus and our trust towards him. The last six can be summarized in what Jesus says is the second greatest command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in loving our neighbor, I'm supposed to honor those that God has placed in authority over my lives. My mother and my father first. I'm supposed to value the lives of other people, so I'm not supposed to murder. I'm supposed to to value the relationships of other people, so I'm not to commit adultery. I'm to value the property of other people, so I'm not to steal. I'm to value the reputation of other people, so I'm not to lie against them. And now I'm not supposed to desire anything that is not mine and wrong. What we find, though, is coveting breaks both of those two great commands. First off, coveting is a breaking of the first command, loving the Lord, or or the second command, loving your neighbor as yourself. It is injustice. Anytime we break the second command, love your neighbor as yourself, it is a form of injustice. And coveting is injustice. A wrong desire for for what belongs to somebody else is the root, really, of all injustice. As we've looked at those other six commands, uh, five commands over the last several weeks, and we've talked about not uh, murdering, honoring our father and our mother, not stealing, etc. What we've seen is that those are ultimately rooted in our desire. There's a couple of times that I've said that we desire what we don't deserve. And we have a longing after that. And when we give in to these fallen desires, what we end up doing is we devalue the people around us. We don't see the value in their life. We don't see the value in their marriage or their private possessions or even their reputation. And so we find it easy then to fight and to cheat and to steal and to lie. When we see what someone else has and we desire it for our own, at the root of it is a covetous heart. And there are many biblical examples of that. It doesn't take very long to look around, and you can find the example probably the most famous in Scripture is the story of David and Bathsheba. Long before David committed adultery, long before David committed murder, long before David lied, he stood on his roof and he longed for something that belonged to Uriah, namely a person, which was Bathsheba. Think about David's son, Absalom who longed after his sister inappropriately. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he raped her, and then he had nothing to do with her. Think about the wicked king Ahab, who walked out and he decided, you know what, here's this poor man who has this really wonderful vineyard, and Ahab comes and says, let me buy it for you. And Naboth there says, no, I won't give away the land that belongs to my family. And so what does Ahab and Jezebel decide to do? They falsely accuse him in the courts, and they kill him, and they take it for themselves. And rooted in that was a longing for what wasn't theirs. But coveting doesn't always necessarily look like or manifest itself in killing and stealing. It can be very subtle, and it can have massive ramifications that affect not only our lives, but especially the lives of the people that are around us. When I was in high school, there was a a classmate of mine who loathed me. Like, hate is not a strong enough word for how this kid felt about me. 
we weren't in any of the same circles. We didn't have a class together. We weren't in clubs together. We weren't on teams together. We were in completely different sections of, of the building. Same class, but we never crossed one another's paths. But somehow it came back to me when I was running for student body president that somebody had approached this, this young man and had asked whether or not he would vote for me. And man, they just regretted that conversation real quick. It turns out that that goes all the way back. We had had a, 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 a um, uh, we had known each other when we were younger, actually in elementary school. We had been in the same Cub Scout group together. And we had had an altercation there because even then he didn't like me. But I found out then and there that the reason that he didn't like me was because of his father. I, for whatever reason, was late getting into Cub Scouts, and so I had a lot of catching up to do. And so my dad worked diligently with me to teach me the Cub Scout motto and all of the things that I needed to know so that I could take the tests and get what I needed to get started and get going. And, and I did, in about maybe a week of intense working with my father, what took some kids a month or a month and a half. And so I walked in and I, I did what I needed to say and, and I got the badges that I needed to, to, to get. And uh, turns out, though, that this... Cub Scout leader's son was this young man, and he had been struggling. And he made the comment to his son, why can't you be more like Will? And that sowed such a deep seed of disgust, such a, a deep seed of disdain in him that it shaped his vision of me for the rest of his life. And his father began to reward me. He made me troop leader and a bunch of different things um, in that. And so that then escalated. It was later in, I think it was in college, that he reached out to me on Facebook. And uh, he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he reached out specifically to me to apologize for all of the heart, hurt and the hatred that he had held against me from that young age. But in that moment, that father longed for a son that he didn't have. And as a lazy father, he decided that he was going to, instead of raising his son, he was going to compare him and he was going to put him down. Our coveting after what isn't ours and what doesn't belong to us has ripple effects that affects the people that are around us negatively in so many different ways. Coveting is about our desires and it's hard to point it out, but really we see that wherever there is sin, wherever there is murder and lying and cheating and stealing and adultery, the root of it is a heart that longs for what doesn't belong to me. A desire for what I don't deserve. It's hard for us to say, aha, you're coveting, or is it? No, you're lying. So there's a heart that's inside of there that is longing for something that you don't deserve. You're stealing. You're taking from what belongs to somebody else. There is a heart that is not trusting there. What we find is coveting sows seeds of disdain, distrust, and discord in all of our relationships. Our desires are the root of all of our evils. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Where there is conflict, where there is discord, 
There are desires that are at war with one another. It's far beyond just the physical. There is a spiritual battle that is existing as two different desires hit head on, whether it's in your marriage or in this church or in Washington, D.C. Is there disdain and distrust in your heart for somebody or something? Are you looking out of the, as we like to say, out of, are you looking out of the side of your eyes to somebody? I don't know about that church down the road. They got to be doing something a little sketchy to get that many baptisms. They, they got to be a little bit sketchy to get that many growth. They're fudging the numbers somewhere, or maybe it's a person that's in your life. They've got to be fudging the numbers. They've got to be somehow, some way cheating. Do you view people as, with contempt? Is there something so deep inside of you that there's a disdain in your heart for whatever someone else has done that's wrong? Or maybe it's not just necessarily that you're having struggles accepting somebody or loving someone, but maybe the people in your life are merely means to an end. Maybe your coworkers and their job and the place that you are, you can't really live in the moment and serve in that place because your eyes are on the next step in your career. And you're not actually loving and caring for the person that is there or the church that is in front of you or the community that is in front of you. You're always looking beyond the people that are in front of you to the people that you want around you, and so you're ignoring them. But wherever there is fighting, James has already told us that at that point, there is desires and coveting that is the root of it. And beneath every sin, beneath every injustice, there's a covetous heart reaching out for what's desired, even if it means taking from someone else. But most of all, it's taking from the Lord. You see, coveting isn't just injustice. Coveting is also idolatry. It's exactly what Paul says. In both Ephesians and Colossians, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, coveting is idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, coveting is idolatry. Well, how in the world is longing for what is somebody else's or longing for what I don't have, how is that idolatry? Well, when we, re- when we wrongly desire what belongs to others, it's ultimately a declaration that I don't believe that God has been fair to me. When you're at that birthday party and you cut that slice of cake for your kids and that one kid gets frustrated, it's not just a frustration that in this moment he got more than me, it's that you weren't fair. And when my son comes in and says, hey, can I have a piece of candy? And we say, no. Well, that one got a piece of candy. Yes, I understand, but here's the thing that you seem to have forgotten in the moment. You got a slice of cake at school and he didn't. And so we have a larger perspective as your parents, but ultimately in that moment, it's not just simply about what I want. It's ultimately about, you didn't treat me correctly, mom. You didn't treat me fairly, dad. And when we covet, it's actually a declaration deep in our hearts that says, God, you're not fair. It's doubting in the goodness of God. See, before covenanting is a personal problem or even an interpersonal problem, it's a theological problem. It's rooted in a doubt and a distrust and, or even maybe just an ignorance of what the Bible teaches us to be true about God. And when it comes to this notion of coveting and when it comes to this notion of how we live our lives, there are true, two very powerful biblical truths that we have to hold simultaneously. First and foremost, the notion that God is sovereign. We saw this specifically in our study on the command that we must not steal. God owns all things. God gives all things. 
God, everything that we have in our lives comes from God. He directs our lives, he rules our lives in every detail of the universe. He is the sovereign God over all of the universe. He sees every single detail from beginning to end. He knows it all. There is nothing that can catch him off guard. There is no force or no individual who is ever more powerful than God. And nothing that can upset or overthrow God's rules. When we forget this or we downplay this truth, then we tend to think that we are really gods and my desire for my life is ultimate. And God then simply becomes a means to an end to get what I want. That's exactly what Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy as he starts talking about the evil teachers that might arise in the end times. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, he concludes this, that there's constant friction among all people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. That if I live the right way, if I do what God tells me that I'm supposed to do, then God is somehow obligated to give me what I want. Health, wealth, prosperity, a life of ease and success. But this will never do. God alone is God, and we must humble ourselves before the Lord and realize that he alone is the sovereign God of the universe, and we have to humble ourselves to submit to his plan. But we have to balance our understanding of God's sovereignty over all things with also God's love and goodness. God is good. God is not just far and, and separated away from the world that he has created. It's not a, as we've said, he's, uh, it's been said by um, I think apologists and others, God is not the great watchmaker who created the world and wound it up and is now letting it run. God is intimately involved in every detail of our lives, proving his goodness again and again. As he shows his people that he is ready to give good gifts, he's ready to provide all of our needs, and he's shown this prim primarily in the first gift, which is his gift of redemption. This circles all the way back around to the very first word that God spoke here in this passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying, and he begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You remember all of these words, these commands given to us by God are built upon the foundation that God has saved us. These are not the means of earning salvation or earning God's favor or getting things from God, but instead, because God has rescued this people from Egypt, has pulled them out of the house of slavery, has placed his name upon them, I am the Lord your God, this is then how they live. They don't live to get that name, but because they've been given that name, they live in such a way that they bring him honor and they trust him even in every detail of their lives. See, when we forget that God is good, we approach him as some despot that's up there just running things in a cold manner. And we distrust that. And we turn from that. And we run away from him, seeing him as unkind and unfair and unjust. And when we see him in this way, we turn from him and then we decide, I can do better than God. And I'm going to do it in my own strength and in my own way. And just like the first time, God is merely a means to our ends. We're a greater God than God. Now I have the ability to do what only God can do. And so we are gods in our own rights then. So if covening is both idolatry 
as well as injustice. It's a breaking of both the greatest command and the second greatest command to love God and love our neighbor. How then do we live lives that bring him honor? What is the antidote to our covetousness? It's contentment. Contentment is the key. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he says that these wicked, evil people, they see godliness as a means of gain, Paul then responds in the very next verse, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is tied to contentment. A being at peace with my circumstances. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether I have wealth, right? Paul doesn't condemn the wealthy. He doesn't say that you you shouldn't pursue that. Paul says, I have learned to be content when I've had much. And so I can be content in God's gift and his graciousness and his goodness in my life in this. But Paul also says, I have learned to be content when I've had very little or nothing. He's had learned to be content when he is accepted and loved, and he has learned to be content when he is beaten and cast out. He's learned my circumstances will change, but God doesn't. And that's the key. Why is contentment tied to godliness? Because it is a Godward perspective. You see, as long as you and I live our lives in this comparison game of what he or she has, what I don't have, then we are going to constantly find ourselves thinking life is unfair. But when we take our eyes off of our circumstances, when we take our eyes off of other people, when we take our eyes off of ourselves, and we adopt a Godward perspective that says, my circumstances will ebb and flow. They will come and they will go. Isn't that the, the promise that we make even as we stand on our wedding day? In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, I will be steadfast. Why? Because God is steadfast in the same way. My life may change, but God will not. And so when I focus my eyes on God and remember that he is sovereign over all things, the good times of my life are a gift from God, the bad times of my life where there are trials and there are sufferings, that God has not abandoned me in that time, God is not somehow caught off guard in that time, but God is with me even more intimately in that time to shape and mold and carry me through it. God does not change, but he is steadfast and he is stable and he is good. And everything that comes into my life, even though it may seem difficult or tough or wrong in the moment, God has the unique ability to turn around for our good. Because even when we are tempted to say, God, this isn't fair. God, it's not fair that I don't have the money that I need. It's not fair that I'm sick. It's not fair that I I can't seem to find the job or progress in this workplace in the way that I want. My life isn't fair, God. The Bible would remind us that God is sovereign and God is good and God's plan is always better than yours. 
Stop and think about that. God's plan is always better than yours. So even the worst time of your life, according to God's plan, is infinitely better than the best time of your life if you were in charge. And God has proven that again and again and again, but most of all, he's proven it in his son, Jesus Christ, who, unlike us, would cry out, God, this is not fair. Jesus Christ trusted in his Father even to the point that he endured what definitely wasn't fair for our sake. Was it fair that he was falsely accused? Was it fair that he was drugged before the authorities of his day, that he was beaten, that he was hung on a cross? Was it fair that the God of the universe, in his justice, poured out his wrath for sin on a man who never sinned? Jesus Christ embraced what wasn't fair for our sake and not for his own. He trusted the plan of God. He walked in faithfulness to the God who was faithful. He believed in the goodness of God, and God proved his goodness again when he raised Jesus from the dead three days later. And now Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is interceding for you and for me, where he is cheering us on from the presidential box, watching over our lives. And he calls us into God's goodness to trust in God and trust in the Father just as he trusted in the Father. And to find in that a contentment that allows us then to live our lives, whether the money goes out the window, whether my health goes through the floor, whether a tornado tears this building to the ground. Or if God allows us to explode to 5, 10, 20,000 people. Or God allows my bank account to grow 10, 20, 30 fold. Or God turns me into Superman. My circumstances may change, but God does not. And I don't have to be a monkey in a cage responding to my circumstances. I can be a child held in the hands of a father. And no matter what it is, see that picture in your mind of that father sitting in a bumpy car or on a ship that's being tossed to and fro by the waves of a storm, and yet there the father is holding that child, and no matter what it is that happens around, the father never fails. Earthly fathers will fail I will fail as your pastor. God will never fail. And so we can trust in him and pursue trust, which is the key to contentment. And trust is rooted in first and foremost receiving from God his goodness and his love that comes in his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in that place today where you are in a difficult situation and you're finding it hard to believe. Then I would encourage you to stop trying. 
because you'll never be able to stir up the belief in your own heart. You'll never be able to create it in your own mind. Instead, I would encourage you, just like that father who brought his epileptic son to the feet of the disciples as one last-ditch effort, can you heal him? And they failed. And Jesus came on the scene. He says, if you can do this, would you? Jesus said, if. Everything is possible for those who believe. And his prayer was, I believe. Help my unbelief. Are you in that difficult place where you're finding it difficult to trust in the Lord? You see the success of so many people around you, and you're struggling. Cry out to the Lord, not to change your circumstances, but to change you. That then you might, in knowing his goodness and trusting in his faithfulness, receive from him the love that is needed to then love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength love my neighbors as myself. And where and when I am overflowing with the love of God that is my gift in Jesus Christ, then keeping these commandments is just an overflow of a loving relationship with the Father who is in charge and who loves perfectly. Can you trust him today? I invite you, would you trust him today?